So this morning, uh, we are returning to our series on creation, crisis, and the cross. And the timing of this seems pretty apt, doesn't it? We didn't, do, we didn't line this up to coincide with the Extinction Rebellion protests, but it, it has. Um, and the more I hear about climate change in the news, I don't know about you, but the more I hear about it, the more I begin to feel overwhelmed by the challenge. Uh, on Monday evening this week, there was a Panorama episode. Did anyone see it? It was entitled Climate Change, What Can We Do? And it documented the experiences of a fairly ordinary family um, as they tried to reduce their impact on the environment and they tried to reduce their uh, dairy and their meat consumption and how far their food had travelled. They tried to reduce their transport. Um, they tried to reduce the amount of electricity they used uh, around the house. And even though they reduced that overall amount of their kind of carbon emissions, their, their negative impacts, by about a third, which is pretty good, the scientists on the program were saying, actually, even if every household in the country did that, it still wouldn't be enough to do what we need to do to reduce global warming. And it's not just individual lifestyle choices, because it's also businesses and governments around the world that are going to have to do a huge amount to tackle climate change. The, the chair of the government's independent committee on climate change said on the episode that if we want to get to a stage where we are not contributing more to global warming by 2050, which is the government's current target, then it means that by 2030, so just over, what, just over 10 years' time, we should, not be able to, we should not be producing any new cars with petrol or diesel engines. So that means in 10 years' time, you shouldn't be able to go out and buy a new car that's got a petrol or diesel engine. It should all be hydrogen or electric or hybrid. If you think about that for a second and the implications, that is massive. If you think about what that's going to do to the fuel industry, you think about what that does to petrol stations. You know, there are people here I know who work at petrol stations. You know, what, what's that going to do to that industry? What's it going to do in terms of we need so much more electricity to power all of our electric cars? Where are we going to get that from? We can't use fossil fuels because that's just digging ourselves a hole. So how do we begin to make that gigantic switch? And I find myself suddenly looking ahead thinking, crikey, this seems a bit beyond our grasp. I end up looking at the future with trepidation like I did in the summer when there was the heat wave going on, thinking, where's this going in the future? And I find myself thinking, we desperately need help. Last time, we looked at the question, why is creation broken? We went back to the beginning of the story, the story of creation where God gave humanity the privilege of stewarding creation, his creation. And we looked at the story of the fall and how Adam and Eve, they took the fruit from that one tree in the garden which they weren't supposed to eat from. And that despite all the abundance of the garden, all the abundance of creation, they still wanted more. They still wanted to take more. And how we so often want to take more and more and we consume so much. And so quickly we forget all that God's given us and sometimes even ignore the impact that our consuming has on the rest of the world and on the environment. And so this week, we're going to focus on what the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death and his resurrection mean for the environment. Is there any good news for the environment in the sea of doom and gloom that we read about? Well, yes, there is. But it might not be what you expect. Because the punchline of our reading today is that we cannot save the world, but he can. 
no matter how hard we try, how much protesting we do, how much we reduce our consumption, how, much we, how little we fly, how little electricity we use, no matter what we do, we can't save the world on our own. But he can. He is able to save the world. And extraordinarily, he invites us, who were the cause of the issues in the first place, to join with him in that mission of healing and renewing creation. So this morning, we're thinking about the consequences of the fall. What, what happened when they took the fruit and then left the garden? Secondly, what is God's plan for saving the world? And thirdly, how do we fit in to that plan? So firstly, what are the consequences of a broken creation? Well, our Bible reading in Genesis last time ended with the breakdown of three main relationships. The first is the breakdown between the relationship of man and woman when they put each other first rather than putting God first. God commands them not to take that fruit and yet Eve is tempted by the snake, takes the fruit and then Adam listens to Eve and takes the fruit as well rather than both of them being obedient to God and doing what he'd asked them. And so we read about this breakdown in that relationship. There's this sense that men might rule over women in a way that was never intended, that there's this potential for oppression that was never part of God's plan. And then there's a breakdown in the relationship between humanity and creation. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17, at the end of our reading last time, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. There's a sense that creation is broken because man and woman have abused the freedom and the abundance that was in the garden. In Romans 8, um, Romans, brilliant chapter of Romans 8, verses 19 to 21, Paul talks about creation being bonded to decay and subjected to frustration because of the curse. And I think this is a major area of theology where we begin to see climate change actually working out around us. Um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN's big body on climate change, they've noted that as global temperatures rise, extreme weather phenomena like typhoons and hurricanes are increasing. And numerous people in the past have argued that climate change was a totally natural phenomenon, but now very few people hold that view in the scientific community. There's a real understanding that human activity has accelerated that natural process way too much. In fact, that, that same UN body, the scientists, they believe that there is more than they're more than 90% confident that a lot of the, the rises in extreme weather is because of the impact we have had on the planet. And I think that when we look around at those things in the world, when we look around and see these awful things happening, I think God is hoping that we will reach out to him for a solution. I think he's hoping that we'll begin to realize that creation is very, very broken because of our brokenness. And actually that we would reach out as we see hurricanes and typhoons and the ice cap melting and we would reach out to him and say, Lord, we, we need your help. We need a solution. So our relationship with creation is broken because our hunger for, for more, to keep taking more, to keep consuming. But actually, our hunger for more is really a misdirection of our true hunger, which is that hunger for intimacy with God, which is the third breakdown in the relationship we see in Genesis. At the very end of the Genesis story, we read in Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, 
Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. They must not be allowed to reach out their hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they'd been taken. And after he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What happens at the end of the story is that humanity is banished from the garden. It's almost like our greed and overconsumption has meant we can't be trusted with it. And that rather than allow us to stay in a place where we might rebel against God even more, where we might try and sideline him and try and abuse creation and take what, try and fulfill that hunger for God from creation or, or put ourselves in place of God, God banishes us from the garden in the hope that we would be homesick, in the hope that we would realise that actually our true hunger is in him. And so there is hope. Because even as we read the end of that story, when we're banished from the garden and that, that breakdown in the relationship, we, did you notice in that, that little bit I read out that we see a, an allusion to a tree of life? And that speaks so profoundly, doesn't it, of the tree of life that we would one day come to know as the cross and the way back into God's presence. And that leads us to our passage today, God's plan for saving the world. In verse 20 of that reading we had from Colossians, through him, through Christ, that is, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself. So what is God's plan for saving the world? Well, that through Christ he'd reconcile everything, all of creation, all of humanity, to himself. This whole passage from Paul is all about trying to prove to the young Christians he was writing to in Turkey and in Colossae that Jesus is God. And what that means is a couple of things. Firstly, creation is just as important to Jesus as it was and is to the Father. And secondly, Christ wants us to be reconciled to him despite our overconsumption, despite our decision to disobey God. Paul was saying that all things were created in Jesus. You notice that in the passage. All things were created in him and for him and through him and in him all things hold together that he might have the supremacy. There's this real sense that in the beginning, Jesus was there creating with the Father. He was thinking about how the world would look, what it would look like. And actually that Jesus was the one who was going to be so happy and more than willing to step into creation as God himself to bring about that plan to save creation, to save the environment, to bring us back. Someone once said that the minute that Adam and Eve took of the fruit, Jesus was packing his bag and heading out for Calvary. That even in that very moment when we took more than we needed, that God already had a plan. And that plan for God to put all his fullness into Jesus and Jesus to go to the cross, to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The answer to our problem of over-consuming was the self-giving sacrificial love of Christ. When it comes to climate change, we cannot save the world, but he can. His love for creation far surpasses ours. His might and power to work supernaturally to reverse the effects of climate change far surpasses ours. And his grace to melt my hard human heart, to change my lifestyle, to radically transform how I view creation and radically transform how I might want to live in a way that cares for creation, that is the biggest hope 
that we have. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, the universe, the creation. He so loved everything in it that he gave his one and only son. It wasn't just for us that Christ came and died and rose again, but for the whole of creation. That through him, we and all creation might find renewal and healing. So what now? How do we fit in? In the first half of our passage, in verse 9 onwards, Paul writes, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. We might have been banished from the garden, but we've been invited into the kingdom. And if we've responded to his invitation to receive his love and forgiveness made available through the cross, then we have the benefits and the responsibilities of being members of the kingdom of heaven. And there are just two things I want to say about that. Firstly, he has qualified us. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people, Paul writes. And what that means is that he invites us to help him when it comes to climate change and not the other way around. It's so easy, isn't it, when we look at the protests and we look at documentaries like the Panorama one, that we can slip into that thinking of it's all about us, we've got to save the world, it's all down to us. But first and foremost, it starts and ends with God. He has a plan for the healing and renewal of creation, which he gave his own son for. And then he invites us to step into that, his plan. It's not our fight that we ask for a bit of God's help in. It's the other way around. It's his mission that he invites all of us to give our lives to. And I think that's key because not only is he more able than us, but guilt and shame are horrendous motivators. Now, I'm quite conscientious, um, but I'm also very adept at making plenty of mistakes, as my wife will no doubt corroborate. And what happens when I make mistakes of any kind is I try and make up for them. I try and work really, really hard to make up for the mistakes that I've done and, and sometimes make things worse. I don't know if you've experienced that as well. But what I find in those situations when I'm trying to make up for something I've done wrong is that shame is what's motivating me. You know, I'm ashamed of what I've done and I'm trying to save face. And I think it's so easy for us to fall into the same trap with climate change. I think there are times when those of us who are really passionate about climate change can also start sort of shame spreading. We, you know, almost unintentionally, we find that we're motivated by shame or guilt or fear, and we begin to kind of share that. Or we end up adopting a sort of saviour complex and declare that we're the new Moses of the climate change era that's going to lead God's people out of slavery to fossil fuels and... Then we become very militant, and anyone who disagrees with us, we get really angry or upset with. And then maybe we suddenly realize that when we take people's lack of enthusiasm personally, maybe somehow it's become about us. And actually what the cross teaches us is that God has already got a plan for clearing up the mess, and it's his plan, not ours. And believe it or not, I still remember a time before sat-nav in cars. And um, so when I was young and we were going on a journey we didn't know very well, uh, someone would have to sit in the front passenger seat with a massive A to Z and map read. And on a number of journeys, and you know, we were going off to France or something on a holiday, um, the person driving had no idea where they were going. Um, and it was all down to the person with the map. 
I think for me, climate change is like that. You know, God is the one with the map. God knows where we're going. God knows what his new kingdom is going to look like that he's bringing about on earth. God knows the direction. He might invite us to, to help with that, but he's the one with the map. And so the start of any Christian action on climate change has to start with each of us turning back to him, coming in humility before the cross and saying, God, I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. I have no leg to stand on in this. I'm part of the cause of the problem. I'm part of the reason that climate change is an issue and I'm part of the reason that you're on the cross. And it starts with us coming back and saying, but I'm, I'm here on my knees before you, asking for your forgiveness and asking for your help. Because then we discover grace. Then we realize it's not because of who I am or anything I've done, but because of who he is and what he's done. The cross is that great leveler, isn't it? It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your background is, where you've come from. If you'll come humbly before the cross, you will find grace. You will find kindness and love and acceptance and forgiveness. And that means that any passion we have for climate change doesn't come from guilt or pride. It comes from love and kindness and generosity that we have been shown ourselves. Because actually when climate activists get really militant or aggressive, I think for a lot of us that's a bit of a turn-off, isn't it? Um, in summer, I went to the climate change seminar at New Wine and actually came away feeling a little bit discouraged because um, there were a lot of, the speaker was fantastic, but there were a lot of people around the room who were very aggressively asserting positions. And there wasn't a lot of kind of grace or kindness around the room. And I ended up feeling quite discouraged and rather than sort of coming away impassioned. You know, we often talk about how love is more powerful than fear. I suppose that when we speak of climate change and our responsibility and our response to it, it's so good to remember that, isn't it? That actually it's the love of God that will transform the situation. And that's not to say that the situation isn't bad. It is. But my hope is in the cross. My hope is in God's plan to bring about a solution. And that leads me on to my second and sort of final point of where do we come in. And that's by becoming renewed stewards. And we talked last week about being uh, made stewards in the garden and stewards of God's creation. And then we fell away from that and wanted to just take more for ourselves than treating it as God's. But the cross invites us back into that relationship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden, that intimacy. The cross is the way back to discovering our role as stewards. And this time, not just of a garden, but of a kingdom. And this time we do it as children, working with their father. When I was growing up, my parents had a, a little cottage in Suffolk that we used to go to on the weekends. It was a very rural, quite isolated place. And we had a, a fairly reasonably sized garden there. And so that was the place where I learned to garden. Um, on Saturday mornings, all four of us, mum, dad, brother and I, would be out in the garden. Uh, and because it was before the days of, sort of too much health and safety, we were given sort of massive shears at the age of about eight and sort of set to work you know, cutting the hedges and, um, and cutting the grass and watering the plants and, and weeding. And there was something really quite fun about it. We were all doing it together as a family. Whereas today, on Saturday morning, you will not find me gardening. I kind of don't really like it very much. I, it's, a bit of, it's more of a hassle for me than anything else. You know, and so when I look back and think, why wasn't it a hassle back then? The answer is because we were doing it together as a family and because we were all there in the presence of each other. It is the presence of God which transforms these things into being something that we want to do. It will transform our hearts and our attitudes. 
It's through the cross we become children of God, knowing him as our father. It's in that restored relationship, that restored intimacy of walking with God like in the garden, that we begin to find that we are transformed. And I'm convinced that there is nothing else so powerful in the whole universe for addressing the issue of climate change as the cross and the impact that that brings to individual hearts and lives. If we want to find the power to overcome the spiritual strongholds in our hearts that have a negative impact on climate change, the cross is where it's going to happen. If we want to overcome that, that fear of how will I cope if I don't drive as much, or I really don't want to give up flying abroad, or I really don't want to give up how much stuff I eat or consume, or if we want to overcome those strongholds that we all struggle with, the way to, through that is going to be at the cross. God invites us to steward his kingdom with him. And next time we're going to think a lot more about what will that kingdom look like. You know, we, we might share stories now, don't we, of, of the kingdom coming. We'll, we'll share a story of where we saw someone healed or where we've seen a prayer answered or where we've seen someone be kind to a stranger. And it's, it's, it's signs of God's kingdom coming amongst us. What does that look like for the climate? What does it look like for, for things to be renewed and for new things to be planted and for um, that change to come about? That's what we're going to think about next time. And the reason we're going to do that, I don't want you to take away from this morning that we should just sit back and do nothing because God's done it all on the cross. It's a change of motivation and a change of understanding. We do it because of the cross. It's because God has shown his love for us to reconcile all things to himself that we therefore go and seek his kingdom. And that's absolutely key because the sacrifices that we're going to have to make are going to be um, potentially quite painful. (laughs) I know that I'm still wrestling with several areas of climate change where I wish I was better. And the thing that I think is going to help us make those sacrifices is looking at the sacrifice that God himself made. Because we, when we think about the sacrifices we have to make and what we might have to give up for God's creation, we can just look at the cross and see how much God gave up to bring us home and to make a way for creation to be restored. That is the good news of the environment. Overconsuming human beings humbled, transformed by the love and forgiveness of God demonstrated on the cross. A people invited into God's purposes of bringing about the kingdom on earth and a renewed earth at that. So let's pray. Lord God, we offer you our hearts this morning. Again, would you change us? Would you heal us? Would you restore us to being those stewards that you made us to be? And Holy Spirit, above all, would you illuminate that truth of the cross in our hearts? Lord, how much you gave for us. How much you loved us. That you would go to the cross and die for us that we might know you as our Father, not as some distant, lofty God, but as someone who draws near to us, who's with us in the pains and trials of life and brings hope for healing and renewal. Lord, we put our trust in you, in your cross and in your plan for the healing and saving of the world this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.